You are listening to the Living Way Church podcast. For more information about Living Way Church, go to livingwaychurch.cc. The end is near. The end is near. It's here. We've heard about it. Now we're reading about it. And the end is near. Anybody here believe that? Anybody here believe that the end is near? Well, it is. I want to talk about that today. The Apostle Paul has been, uh, sorry, the Apostle Peter has been talking to us about living in this world that seems to be going just bonkers. He's writing to a church, a group of Christians, actually a bunch of Christians, not just a specific church, but a group of Christians who have been chased out of their homes under immense persecution and they're they're heading into new towns and villages and locations where they're uh, also being persecuted. They're getting there and these people don't know Christians and what they have heard, they think that we are crazy and so they begin to persecute them even more and so Peter writes this letter and says, listen, don't don't worry. God is with you. God, you're not alone. Christ was persecuted and experienced hardship, and so will you. And he says, we need to live different, be different, respond different. He says, listen, persecution's going to follow. Persecution's going to be there. So it's our responsibility that we need to remember that we're being watched and that we are to live a life that points to Jesus in every area of our life. We are to live gracious, humble, respectful lives and gain the right to speak into their life. But then he says this when he gets to chapter four. He says, man, it's tough. He spends most of chapter three and chapter four talking about how tough it is. But then in verse seven, he says, it's going to get worse. Let's take a look at that verse. We skipped a section last week and we're going to return to it today. We're going to look at five verses. First Peter chapter four, verse seven is where we ended up. So let's read it. It says, verse seven, the end of all things is near. Therefore be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God, of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do it as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Now, we're going to unpack these five verses, but I want to point out verse 7. It says, the end of all things is near. The end is near. Who believes the end is near? You don't have to raise your hand. I just went rhetorical question. The end is near. Now, Peter wrote this letter 2,000 years ago. A lot has happened in 2,000 years. A lot of people read passages like this from Peter. Paul says it. James says it. John says it. Several of the gospels say it. Jude says it. 
And they all say that the end is coming. The end is near. Now, the New Living Translation, which is a paraphrase, I'm going to explain the difference in a second, says it this way. It says, the end of the world is coming soon. So if you have an NLT, a New Living Translation, when you got to this section, you're like, the end of the world is coming soon. And then you thought, well, this was written 2,000 years ago. And you might have initially thought that meant they were wrong. It meant that Peter was wrong. And that Paul was wrong, and that John was wrong, and that James were wrong, and that the Gospels were wrong. By the way, the difference between a, a paraphrase and a literal is a literal is a translation that attempts to take the ancient language of Greek or Hebrew and translate it word for word into English. A paraphrase is where they try to paraphrase what is said and take the thought for thought, rather the word for word. And the problem with the paraphrase, it is very subjective to the translator. So if the translator has a point of view, that point of view is going to come out in the paraphrase. So that means some paraphrases can be very handy. I like reading the NLT for a devotion. But there are certain passages that are paraphrased in a way that is not necessarily accurate. The NLT version of this verse is one of those. Because the world did not come to an end technically, but literally, yes, sort of. Because this verse literally means the end of, of everything we know is near. That's what it means, word for word. Peter was saying the end of everything we know is near. So was Peter wrong? A lot of people say that guys like Peter, Paul, and John, and and uh, it sounds like a, a band, doesn't it? Um, that these guys and, and some of the other writers, they just had good hearts, uh, good intentions. They believed that Jesus was coming back in their life. And in this area, they just happened to be wrong. The problem with that is, is that if they were wrong, how can we trust anything they say? How can we trust the verses before it? How can we trust the verses after it? If verse 7 is wrong, how is verse 8 not wrong? We can't trust the Bible if they're wrong. Here's the deal. They were not wrong. They were not wrong. They were literally living in the end of an age where everything they knew was coming to an end. Everything that they knew, the end was coming and everything was about to change. This, like Peter and Paul and John and James and other writers, I've got listed several passages in your notes where phrases like this are used. They're all speaking prophetically about actual events that they are living and that they lived through. See, the end of their entire Jewish religious tradition was coming to an end. Their city, their capital city, Jerusalem, was about to be destroyed and torn down forever. And a massive attempt to wipe out Christians out of the Roman Empire was in front of them. And whenever the New Testament speaks about this, about the end is near, the end is coming soon, they're all speaking prophetically 
references to the end of an age that they were actually living that culminated in the peak of the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, where the temple was destroyed and an entire religious system was torn to the ground. They were dispersed all over the world. And Jerusalem, by the way, remained a, a, a port you know, a place where just where, where um, uh, travelers just came through. It was a port city that was remained, uh, you know, destitute and abandoned for nearly 300 years. It changed everything. However, what he said is still true, because the principle that he said that the end is near is true today. The end is near. Let me explain what that means, because there are three clocks ticking right now. Three clocks. These three clocks are your clock, their clock, and our clocks. Let's take a look at three clocks. There's your time. What does that mean? Well, in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, which we went over a couple of weeks ago, Peter talks about these three clocks, and he says this. He's talking about how we have your time is ticking. Those who know Jesus... Your chance to make a difference is running out. This is not March 7th. That day is gone. And it's not coming back. We're not getting March 7th, 2020 ever again. And this day is quickly moving and coming to an end. And when this day is over, you can't live this day again. You get one chance to live this day. Every season, every age, every year of your life is quickly and rapidly ending. There are many stages of our life. There are many seasons of our life. Our years in school, our years in high school, our years in college, that, that season of building a career or raising a family our midlife season. Some of you guys are in that now. The empty nesters and the retirement years. You don't get to do any of those twice. You only get one chance to live for Christ in high school. My chance to do that is long gone. You only have one chance to be a sold out student for Christ in college. One chance. You get one chance in your 20s to live to the max for Jesus. You get only one chance to raise your children in a godly way. There are no do-overs. You have one run through your midlife challenges. You have one chance to finish strong. One chance. One chance to live your years of retirement. You have one chance. You don't get to do any of them again. Peter is saying, listen, in light of the end in sight, we don't have time to wait. The end is near. We don't have time to mess with our sin and our habits. We don't have time for it. He says this in, in 1 Peter chapter 4, he says, we've had enough of that. I've spent and wasted enough of my time in my old life. He says, I, I don't have time for that. Your clock is ticking. Your days are coming to an end. That clock is ticking and it's not stopping. We had, in fact, we all lost an hour today. We all lost an hour. 
Well, we're going to get it back in the fall. Well, this day's not coming back. Not only is your time ticking, but also is their time. Their time is the time for those who are resisting Christ. Time is limited and running out. If you're not a Christian here today and you're resisting submitting your life to Christ, your time is running out. And every person that you know who is not a follower of Jesus Christ, their time is running out. You will not see those people next to you forever. Their time is short. You may not see your coworker after tomorrow. You may not see the person sitting next to you. You may not be able to wave to that neighbor after today. You may, you may never see them again after this week or after this year. Their clock is ticking, and their days are coming to an end. And without Christ, when that day comes, we will all, and they will stand before God and give an account to their life. And if they are running from God and their time is out, they will have to give an account to God without Jesus. Your time is ticking. Their time is ticking. And our time is ticking together. The day of the Lord's return to receive his bride is coming. And we only have till that day to do what God has called us to do. And when that day comes, our time to accomplish his work will be over. We won't get another meeting, another brainstorm session. We won't get another outreach. We won't get another chance to show up and do it right. Time is ticking away. The return of Jesus is coming, and we will all stand before God and give an account to our lives, even as Christians. Our time is ticking. These three clocks can go off at any time, and they can go off in any order. Any one of you here today could be called home by the end of tonight. A person near to you that you love who does not know Christ, their life could end tomorrow. And Christ could come back at any moment. Peter is telling us there is an urgency. The end is near. In some form or fashion for all of us, the end is near. You know, if you had one year to live, if you knew that the world would be over in a year, what would you do? Like if you knew for a fact. You know, if you had, if you had a year, maybe you had six months, and we were told, you know what, the coronavirus is, is by the way, it's, it's, it's doubled. The, the population of those that have been infected has doubled in the last two months. And it's not a matter of when or if it will hit Dallas. It's when it will hit Dallas. And, and there's this, a lot of fear and anxiety over us. And I'm going to talk about it after the message a little bit about what we can do about it. But if we were told that, man, this is out of control and we can't stop it and it's a snowball and the world as we know it will never be the same... And it's going to be all over in six months or a year. What would you do? In light of the end, in sight, how would you live? Well, Peter says, this is, this is what you should do. And by the way, he doesn't say panic. He doesn't say build a bunker. <laughs> Sell everything and buy as much ammo as you can. For the corona zombie outbreak is coming. 
He does not say that you get rations and turn your swimming pool into a fortress. He says this, living with the end in sight, the first thing he says this, is we need to live expectantly. We need to live expectantly. He says the end is near. Listen, we are exiles. If you're a Christian, we are exiles. We are foreigners. We are refugees. But one day, we will be home. And we are running a race as Christians, and we ought to run this race as if there's only one prize, and we ought to fight the good fight and run this race. But one day, this race will be over. And we are in a spiritual war, and we don't fight against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. It's a spiritual war. But one day, this battle will come to an end. And reality check, Jesus is coming. And every day is sooner than the last. You know, I don't think Christians talk enough about the return of Jesus. I mean, we're just now, some of you getting over your, your fear of talking about a dead man rising from the grave. Let alone that dead man who rose from the grave coming back again. I mean, we, we do good to just be nice people and maybe get them into church and maybe just, you know, tell them about God's love and, and how Jesus died on the cross and maybe you get to the resurrection. But have you ever talked to anybody about the return of Jesus Christ? Jesus is coming back. And every day is sooner than the last. Do you live knowing that it can happen any day? I've heard it said if you believe he could come back tomorrow, then you need to live like he's coming back today. The wonderful, glorious return of Jesus for his bride. We, we will either be excited to see him or we will be afraid when he comes. Yeah, I don't know about you, but when I was a kid, uh, my mom could give some pretty good spankings. But my dad, you know, my stepdad... Uh, the one that wasn't abusive, because <laughs> there's one that like really beat the tar out of us in an unhealthy, abusive way. But my stepdad, who just disciplined us, his spankings were something to be afraid of, you know? So when, when, when your mom spanked you, like, oh, it hurts. Oh, oh, it hurts. I'm sorry, mom. You know? And you're like back to normal. But then your mom says, and wait till your dad gets home because you're getting another. And then also you're like, oh, you know, you're afraid. You don't want to see your dad because you have a rebellious heart. You've done something terribly wrong and you'll have to be held accountable to it. And so you live in fear of that anxiety of that creak of that door, of his car pulling up, the shutting of his car doors, the beeping of that, of that alarm. And you want to hide. You, you don't want to face your father because of the rebellion in your heart. I tell you, when you're in right relationship with your dad, when your dad comes home, when you're a kid, you run to your dad. You're like, oh, dad. And you're hanging on him. And I'm, I remember walking through the house with both of my daughters hanging on my legs. You know, they just wanted to be on me and with me. And like, dad. When you're in good relationship, the welcome is wonderful. But when you're in rebellion, it's a fearful return. Some of you, it will be exciting to see Jesus. And for some of you, it will be very fearful because you have a very rebellious heart. He is coming back. He's coming back.
We need to live expectantly. Here's the next thing he says, verse 7. He says, therefore, since we have this urgency in light of the sight of the end, be alert and of sober mind so that you can pray. So that you can pray. Here's the second thing. Not only do we live expectantly, but we need to pray vigilantly. That means to pray attentively and wide awake. That means no more passive worship or nonchalant, half-hearted, lukewarm, tepid, apathetic, sleepy, empty, powerless prayers. Ain't nobody got time for that. As the great theologian said. You guys even know what I'm talking about? Ain't nobody got time for that. I got bronchitis. Listen, ain't nobody got time for that. It's, it's enough. He says, therefore, in light of the end in sight, wake up, he says. Be alert. Wake up. Get the sleepy out of your eyes. Quit being lazy and be sober-minded. God wants you sober. He wants you to be clear-headed. He wants you to be alert. He addresses this again in chapter 5 which we're going to get to in a couple of weeks. We're going to end it. There's only two more weeks after this. He said, God wants you literally, he says, to be mindful and watchful. Be ready. Take it serious. This is for real. Lives are at stake. The end is near. Lives are at stake. Your family, their time is near. Your friends, the end is near. Your co-workers, the time is ticking. Life, every one of us, our life hangs by a thread. A thin veil between this life and the next. Christ could return at any moment or our life could end. Realize the urgency of those around you. Pray like you mean business for their lives are on the line. Pray for opportunities. Pray that God would use you. Pray vigilantly. And then he says this, above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sin. Love each other deeply. So we are to live expectantly. We are to pray vigilantly and we are to love deeply. That means love that is not shallow that is not surface, that is not a, a smile shake and a nod and a high five and see you later. It's not about sympathy. This is compassionate action love. Getting God's heart for people. He says, in light of the end in sight, the end is near. It's time to love people like you mean business. Your neighbor, you love them because you care for them. They are not an asset, and they're not some spiritual assignment. They are a loved creation of God that he gave his life for. And when you begin to get the heart of God for people, you will love in ways you never imagined. We don't love in just our words. We love in our actions. This is love that is deep, that digs deep. No strings attached, love. And he says this, because love covers a multitude of sins. If we will love deeply in light of the end in sight, we will also forgive quickly. Life is too short to hold on to grudges. 
Life is too short to be bitter. The end is near. Life is too short. Get it right. Where love is, where real love is, offenses are let go quickly. Where love is lacking, every word is suspicious, and every action is questioned, and every motive is doubted. When we live with the end in sight, and we realize how short life is, we get things right with the people in our life, because the end is near. We get a hold of our parents and we make it right. We get a hold of our kids and we make it right. We get a hold of that ex and we make it right because the end is in sight for all of us in some way. Some of you are like, well, you don't know what they did to me. You don't know what they did. Oh, I, I don't, but I know what Jesus did. And love covers a multitude of sin. As we see the fragility and the frailty of life, we begin to realize I need these people in my life. Life is too short to hold a grudge or to be bitter. In light of the end in sight, when we learn to love deeply, we will forgive quickly. Here's the next one, verse 9. He says, in light of the end in sight, we need to offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Here's what this means. Now, they were living in a time when they had, many of them, no homes. They were being chased from community to community. Some of them would find a new home and a new community and begin to set up a residence. And as more Christians coming into their community, as they were being chased, they were refugees, they were homeless, they had no food, they had no home, they have no possessions. And as they begin to make their way, he says, listen, if you have the ability and you see a brother in need... Be hospitable. Invite him into your house. He says this, it's time for us to walk generously. We need to walk generously. As they are struggling, as they are without a home, open up your home to these people. This means caring for and looking out for each other. Jesus says this, they will know that you are my disciples by your love for one another, for other disciples. This is not so much just love for the world. They will know that you are mine by how you love another Christian. You see, if they can see that we love each other as a family, listen, the world doesn't love you. The world only gives love to those that deserve it or earn it. The world is painful. It looks out for its own. It's very selfish. But if the world can see the body of Christ, the family of God, caring for each other, loving each other, being generous with each other, providing for each other, people want to be a part of that family. The world is exhausting, but the family is loving. Paul says this in Galatians chapter 6, verse 10, he says, Therefore, as we have opportunity... Let us do good to everyone, especially to the family of faith. See, we have an obligation to each other. If you're a Christian, you have a responsibility to the other Christians around you, especially the household of faith. 
So Peter's saying, listen, man, when you see another Christian in need, when you see them struggling, open your home. Welcome them. When needs arise, you do it, he says, without complaining. When you are asked, you do it without grumbling. Welcome others as Christ has welcomed you. This is what Paul writes to Timothy, who's a pastor in Ephesus. He writes this in chapter 6, verse 7, which, by the way, I encourage you to read the whole chapter. It's all about how God gives us blessings to bless others. Look at verse 7. He says, command those who are rich, that's you. I was like, I'm not rich. Yeah, you are. You're richer than 90% of the entire world. America holds 10% of the wealth of the world. We have the richest, even the poorest of our people in, in America are considered in the top 20% most wealthy people in the world. The average middle income, that's most of us, we are in the top 10% of the whole world. We are rich. We are rich. And if you've ever traveled the world and done mission work, you know we are, you are rich. So Paul says this, he says, tell the church in Ephesus, which was a big metropolitan city, he says... Tell those who are rich in this present world, because it's only good here in this life, he says, not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in their wealth, or their possessions, their stuff, or their money, which is so uncertain. Man, the economy could crash tomorrow. Man, with the whole corona thing, coronavirus, we are seeing a massive fear in the economy, and it's not going to get better. It's going to get worse. We're going to talk about this in a minute. In light of that, he says, man, the economy, man, your wealth, your possession, is so uncertain. Many of you guys have experienced that. Maybe you've gone through bankruptcy or lost a car or lost a home, and, and you know that these things are very, very uncertain. He says, but those who are rich, those that have possessions, let them put their hope in God who provides us these things. With everything. He provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Why does he give you things? To enjoy. Don't feel bad if you have a nice car. Don't feel bad if you have a decent house. Don't feel bad about it. Just don't put your hope in it. In, the, in this whole chapter, he says, the love of money is the root of all evil, which causes all kinds of vile wickedness. He didn't say money is. Money is neutral. See, if you love people, you will use money for God's glory. But if you love money, you will use people to get more. So he says, don't put your hope in anything you have. Enjoy it while you have it. But he says this, command them, those that are rich, that's us, to do good with it to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share it. Everything we have been given has been given for the purpose of giving it away. Everything that we have to enjoy, we can enjoy it and hold it loosely and let it go. It is very uncertain. My hope is not in any possession. Our hope is not in the things of this life or this world. We need to enjoy it and bless others with it. If you are blessed with material possessions and finances, you are a steward. That means you're, you're not in charge of all of it. You've just been given a portion to take care of. It all belongs to God, every bit of it. 
You are blessed to be a blessing. He says, listen, in light of the end in sight, walk generously. Be hospitable. Open your house. Be generous with the things you have in light of those who are in need because it's going to get worse is what he says to them. He says, our life is about to turn upside down and the end of everything we know is about to change. In light of this, be generous with what you have. God gives blessings to us all by his grace in different measures. So he goes on to say this in the very next verse. He says, for example, each of you should use whatever gift you have received, whatever it is, to serve others. That's why you've been given that gift, to serve others as faithful stewards. That means what you have has been given to you by God to steward, to care for, as faithful stewards of God's grace. The word there, grace, is the word charisma, charismata, which means spiritual gifts, and it also applies to any gift at all from God. Spiritual gifts and gifts in general, we are stewards of them. We've been given these things as stewards by God's grace or gifts in different forms. God, whatever he's blessed you with, whatever it is, has given it to you to bless someone else. God gives at his discretion gifts and spiritual gifts for the purpose of us blessing others. Time is short. The end is near. If you have a gift, spiritual gift, an ability, a talent, if you have material possessions, whatever it is, you know, it's not like one or the other. It's all of it that has been given to you by God has been given to you to bless others. It's time to quit sitting on it and be hospitable and generous with what God has given you for his glory. So he gives an example in the verse. He says in the next verse, verse 11, he says, for example, if anyone speaks, that's a public gift. If you're in front, they should do as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, that's a private gift. Someone who's in back, behind the scenes, they should do so with the strength that God provides. Listen, whether you are in front or in the back, on stage or setting up, Speaking or facilitating, if it seems important or seems less important, we are all equally important and we are to bless each other with the strength that God provides. It's all equally valuable and important. And I love how Peter says, he says, you know what, whether you're in front or nobody even knows what you do, it's all for the glory of God. And he's given you that talent, that ability, that desire, that opportunity for his glory, for his image, and for his famous accolades. He says this, the very next thing. He says, living with the end in sight, in light of the end in sight, verse 11, if anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. We are to live expectantly, pray vigilantly. We are to leave deeply. We are to uh, love deeply. We are to forgive quickly. We are to walk generously. And we are to speak boldly. Speak courageously. Their clock is ticking. Why won't you tell them? It's like their house is on fire and you don't want to wake them up because it's nighttime. And so you're just going to, because they don't want to, you don't want to bother their sleep and you don't want to, you know, wake them up and make them mad at you. You're going to let them burn to the ground. Why are you quiet? Listen, not everybody's called to preach. You may never be in front of a crowd. 
You may never be in front of a class. Not everyone's called to preach, but we are all called to speak the gospel. Every one of you, if you are a Christian, speak courageously. Speak boldly. If you are a Christian, you may be the only voice of God they hear. Their time is ticking. Their time is coming to an end. Tomorrow might be your last opportunity. Speak boldly. Speak courageously. Be brave in this conviction of who God is and who Jesus is and what he is to you. It drives me crazy that Christians can go their whole life and never, ever lead one person into a relationship with Jesus Christ. That is evil. We are commanded, the only great commission we have is to preach the gospel, make disciples, yet Christians can live their whole lives and never do the one thing that Jesus has commanded us to do. Speak Boldly, speak courageously. Matthew 9.35, a powerful passage for every believer. He says this in verse 35. I'm getting wound up here because this I feel convicted deeply about this. It deeply bothers me about Christians. We are content with being good people and inviting people to church. We are the voice of God to a generation, to a world. And the end is near for their life. Whether Jesus is returning in this life or not, or in a hundred years, we'll all face God. The, The probability of all of us living to old people is very unlikely. The probability that that person that you know will make it to 70 or 80 is very unlikely. The number one killer among young people today is automobile accidents. Thousands and thousands and thousands of young people die every month, every weekend, usually alcohol-related. Their time is short. Those moments are brief. You don't have every day. The end is near. Speak boldly. This is what Jesus said in Matthew 9, 35. He says, and Jesus went through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. His heart was breaking for the people. Can we get a heart for people like God has for people? They're not just your coworkers. These are people that God loves. These are not just classmates. These are not just friends. These are people that God loves and gave his life for. Jesus had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless. What's that mean? Harassed means they were afflicted. The enemy was afflicting them. Life was afflicting them. It seems like they were harassed. All around them was attack in their life. And they were helpless. They seemed depressed and without hope and in dark places in their life. And he says, man, my heart was breaking. He says, they're like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into this 
harvest. And the harvest is the world, and the world, that harvest is ripe. They're ready. There are people right now praying that someone would intervene in their life with some hope. The harvest is ripe. They're dying on the vine. Jesus is commanding us to go and tell the world. Peter says, speak boldly. Sit down with your mother. Sit down with your father. Have lunch with your sister or brother. Take that coworker out for coffee. Their clock is ticking. I'll show you this next image. It's from the uh, 60s and 70s. About 1965, around 1965, and it wrapped up closely around 1974, 75. There was a decade known as the Jesus Movement or Jesus People Movement. And what's interesting about this movement is it sparked pretty much everything that we have about American Christianity in, in ways that has changed the world. Some of the largest churches, the largest movements, the largest ministries, radio ministries, whatever, mission work, a lot of it was sparked out of this. And it was so big, it was covered on every major network on a consistent basis for almost 10 years. Magazine covers like Time and, and Life magazine and, and other magazines in prominent print and newspapers, thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of primarily young people were coming to Jesus. And it's not because they were being good people. And they were just being nice and painting houses and handing out water bottles. There's nothing wrong with that. But if we don't have the gospel attached to the action, we're just humanitarians and we're the same as any humanist. It must be attached to the gospel. And that's what they did. They began to preach the gospel. You see, they were living in such a dark time in American history with presidential assassinations and civil rights leaders assassinated and, and candidates being assassinated in the middle of Vietnam War. And they were convinced that the end was near. They were convinced that in their lifetime, by 1978, somewhere in the late 70s, that Jesus would return. And so they began to live with an urgency that was contagious. And they began to preach the gospel like they didn't have tomorrow. And you know what they saw? A revival that has had since then thousands of books written, documentaries made, and many of us are the fruit of that as our parents or, you know, other uh, friends have, have been touched by this. Listen, they were not correct in that Jesus was going to come back in their life because he didn't. But that urgency that they lived with, that it could happen at any moment, changed the world. Peter is saying this in light of the end in sight. Speak boldly. Acts 11 says, This Jesus is the stone the builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. You know, we'll talk about church all day. 
we'll talk about God. We'll talk about, you know, being a better person. But when was the last time you actually said the name Jesus to somebody? That's the name the Bible says that every knee shall bow and tongue confess. That is the name, the only name by which man can be saved. And that is the name that every demon trembles at the sound of. I want us to do something right now. I want us all, if you're a Christian, if you're not, then just sense the tension. If you are a Christian, will you say Jesus out loud? Say it again. Jesus. Now let's, I'm going to count to three. I want us to all say it together. One, two, three. Jesus. Do you, see, do you feel the tension? Do you feel the tension? As the evil spirits that try to influence and afflict our life are afraid and tremble at, that, at the sound of his name? Do you sense? That's why every time you want to talk to somebody, you go to the church language. You go to the God language, but you try to avoid Jesus because you don't want to upset anybody. Listen, the only person you're upsetting are demons. You don't have to be afraid of them (laughs) and you should upset them. Speak boldly. Speak courageously. Romans 1.14 says, I am obligated, Paul says. That means I am compelled. I have no choice. I am so moved by this that I can't not preach the gospel. He says, I am obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks. That means every ethnic nationality. Both to the wise and the foolish. That's every social, economic, educational level. He says, I am compelled. I am obligated. I have no choice. That is why, he says, I am eager to preach the gospel also to you in Rome. He said, I've never been there, and I can't wait to tell you about Jesus. Verse 16. There's like a handful of verses that every Christian should try to memorize. This is one of them. If you have five verses that you have in your like memory bank, believer, this is one of them. Romans 116, for I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. First to the Jew, that's Jesus' descendants, and then to the disciples, or sorry, to the Gentiles, that's everyone else. That means nobody's left out. See, a lot of the first generation Christians thought that the message of Jesus was just for the Jewish people. And God used Peter and Paul and other disciples to say, no, it's not just for Jewish people, it's for everybody. It's for all of us. And I will not be ashamed of it. I am not ashamed. Time to stop being embarrassed. Time to stop being ashamed. The clocks are ticking. This is the last thing he says. Uh, Verse 11 says, if anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides. That means use your God-given skills on the fields of faith. In light of the end in sight, don't excuse yourself to isolation. Sign up and show up and be faithful to serve, to commit to each other. Galatians 5.13, Paul says, you were chosen to be free. We all like that verse. But then he says, don't use your freedom as an excuse to do anything you want. That means to sleep in, to blow off your day, to live any way you want. 
to, to not show up, to show up. He says, don't use that freedom. We're not saved by church attendance. We're not saved by how much we give. We're not saved by how much of the Bible we know. We are free. You are free, he says. You are chosen to be free. He says, but don't use your freedom to be lazy. Don't use your freedom to neglect the body of Christ. He says, but instead, he says, you are chosen to be free. He says, use this freedom, this is verse 13, as an opportunity to serve one another with love. See, that's why we're free. That's why we're free. It's not my way or the highway. It's I choose to serve you. Next week, Peter's about to dive into the difference between leaders and followers and what it takes to be a leader. And that's in chapter five. And, and a lot of it has to do with this issue right here. You'll never have a sense of fulfillment until you serve. Some of you say, I just want to be like Jesus, man. I just want to know Jesus. I want to sense his presence. Some of you guys are hungry for God. Man, I'm so excited about that. You're hungry for Jesus, man. You're developing quiet times and devotional time and Bible reading time. And man, you're just trying to develop some disciplines of other areas in your life. Listen, you will never look as much like Jesus than when you serve. Jesus said, I did not come to be served, but I came to serve. He gave his life. And you look the most like Jesus when you give your life to the service of the kingdom. When you serve one another is when you look most like Jesus. You want to be like Jesus? You want to know Jesus? Serve each other, particularly in the body of Christ, Peter says. So there's three clocks ticking today, and the end is near. Your time is ticking. Uh, their time is ticking. Our time is ticking. Church, our time is here to pray up, stand up, live up to the calling of God, to love passionately, to serve humbly, and to speak boldly, because time is ticking away. Time is short. Why do we do this? This is what he says. Verse 11, he says, so that all things, so that in all these things, in everything that we're doing, in everything that I choose to, to, to be faithful and consistent, when I live a life for Christ, when I speak boldly, when I serve with humility, and when I, when I choose to, to be generous, I do all of these things so that God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. It's not about getting our name on a plaque. It's not about any books being written about me or about you, which may or may not ever happen. It's not about some building being named in our honor. It's about when this is all said and done and the dust settles on your life because the time is near, will Jesus be glorified? Whether they forget your name or not. Will Jesus have the last word in your life? And when they think of you, will they think, man, that person loved Jesus. And I'm closer to Jesus because of them. It's nice if they say you're a nice person or a good person or, you know, decent person or a generous person, but mm -mm, that will be forgotten. But if they know Jesus better because of me, 
They may forget me, but they'll know Jesus forever because it's all for his glory so that he may be praised. May he get all the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Because the end is near for you. And I want to pray for some of you today because your time is coming to an end. We don't know when that is. I, you know, I, I'm 50. I hope I live to be at least 84. <laughs> Nicole's like, you better live past 84. <laughs> I don't know. But I know this. It's ticking. And I can't stop it. And some of you, it's time to say yes to Jesus. Because the end is near for you. Let's pray. God, I thank you. That God, you have called us to know you and to live for you and to reflect you. God, I just want to pray right now, first of all, for Christians, Lord, who sense the urgency of time today. God, it is so much, there's so much joy in living for you, God. I don't, I'm not missing out on this world. I'm not missing out on the things of this world, God, when I live urgently and passionately and enthusiastically with you, God. It takes me all over the world and I meet all kinds of people and I experience all kinds of adventure because, God, living for you is amazing. But, God, it does come with persecution and challenges, Lord. Lord, I pray that there's anyone here who's, who's been lazy in their faith, God, that they would wake up today, that they would be alert and sober-minded today. If that's you today, we just say, God, wake me up. Wake me up, God. In your own words, say, God, wake me up. Help me to see the urgency of the people in my life. God, help me to speak boldly as if their life depends upon it, because it does. I want to pray for some of you. You're here right now, and, and you are not a believer. You're not a Christian. You're living day to day, day by day, in your own choices and will. I warn you today, end is near. It could be a year, could be 10 years, could be tomorrow, but one day you will stand before God. And will you be happy or will you be fearful? You can have the confidence of knowing that you are in right relationship with God right now. Will you take a moment right where you're sitting, if that's you, and say, God, here's my life turn to you in your own words that God here's my life I turn to you forgive me of my sin dear God forgive me of running I submit my life to your will God in your own words maybe you have sin specific sin that you want to confess to him right now he will forgive you he's a good father he's a good God forgiveness and your grace that allows us to be called children of God. In Jesus' name.
Thank you for listening to the Living Way Church podcast. If you enjoyed this message, we hope you come visit us in Garland, Texas. For directions and more information about the church, go to www.livingwaychurch.cc.